Well, we've sung of Christ and what He's done, and now let's look in Scripture and stare at this Christ, the words of this Christ anyway, um, through the Apostle Paul. Turn to Philippians 3 if you have a Bible with you. Meditation of Scripture is staring at it, seeing more than what you saw before. And so I want us to consider just two verses here in Philippians 3 before we partake of this this remembrance meal tonight. And I want you to notice right at the beginning, as you'll see up here in the screen behind me, the middle screen behind me, that, that verse 9 says one thing and verse 10 says something else. It, it shows us two facets of the same gem. In verse 9, Paul says, "...that I may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, which is derived from the law." But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's verse 9. Now what does verse 10 say that's different? It says, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. The cross in the New Testament is talked about in two different ways as a payment that is made and as a path that is lived. A payment and a path. Or we could use different words. The New Testament talks about the cross as our salvation and as imitation. Or as life-giving and as life-directing. You see that in these two verses? The first is... The payment, the salvation, the life-giving thing. The second verse, verse 10, talks about the cross as a way of knowing Him. It's a path, a way of following Him. So it's not just that the cross saves, and then those who believe the cross and are saved are supposed to obey the one that died in their place. It's that the cross is the symbol for our obedience as well as the symbol of our salvation. It's the symbol of our life, not just our eternal life, or our living, not just our eternal life. It's the symbol for following Jesus. Yes, it's the symbol for our salvation, but it's to be something of the tenor of the Christian life. Now, when's the last time you've thought about that? That's been a while for me. There's a title of a book by a guy named Michael Gorman. It's a pretty academic book. Probably wouldn't appeal to most of you, but the title is great. It's the title of this message tonight, Cruciformity. What the author means by cruciformity is the theme that we often see in Paul of being conformed to the image of the crucified Christ. The cross in Scripture, is used as a symbol for our conformity to Christ in His sufferings and His servantry. Now, isn't this a neglected aspect of cross-language? We don't use cross-language too much like this. And I would say, at least that keeps us from certain errors, certain heresies. You see, some people talk about the cross as example. Some people talk about the cross solely as ethic. 
Jesus turned his cheek. He served others. He loved us by dying for us. And look at the ethic of that. Look at the love behind it. He loved his enemies. He prayed for his enemies even while they killed him. Yes, the cross is example. For some, it's only example. And so some of us in, well, in our circles, in our kind of church, maybe we have overreacted just a bit. We, we insist the cross is about our redemption. It's about Jesus in our place, not Jesus showing us how to live. And that's true. But this author points out, Michael Gorman, that half of the New Testament references to the cross of Christ make the cross of Christ a symbol for something about our life, about our living, about our thinking as Christians. So the cross must be, yes, our hope for going to heaven, our hope for being forgiven, but also something that represents the tenor of our life of our servantry, of our sacrifice, of the radical nature of what we're about. If the cross is going to be not just the symbol of how we go to heaven, but the symbol of how we are to live, our living has to change. Our living has to be shown to be something that is radical. You see this in Philippians 2. Look at Philippians 2. Just back up a page or two in your Bible. Famous words. We know these words well. Here's a perfect example of where the cross of Christ, the incarnation, and the cross show us how to live. Paul says, starting in verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. Okay, that's an ethic thing. That's a horizontal thing. That's love others, serve others, consider them more important than yourself. And then how does he motivate that? Well, verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves which was in Christ Jesus. Get inside his head. Get inside his heart. He, although he exists in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He took on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How will we consider others more important than ourselves? You keep staring at the cross. The cross is your, yes, it's your hope for being reconciled to God, but it's also the tenor of your life. It's the motivation of your heart. So now look back at Philippians 3, those words we started with, verses 9 and 10, where we see Paul's one cry. I often use that phrase, one cry, in reference to Psalm 27, where David said, one thing I desire of the Lord. And then he gives a three-prong one thing. Okay? It's, it's all right. He can do that. He's David. He's writing Scripture. He says, there's one thing I want. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord. I want to behold the beauty of the Lord. I want to inquire in his temple. They're all basically the same thing. I want to know him. I want to be near him. I want to see him. I want to get him. That's his one thing. That's his one cry. 
Paul here gives us his one cry, even though he doesn't use the word one. It's basically the same thing. Here's what I want. This is what I'm about. That I might know him. In verse 10, I want to know him. And then I want to know the power of his resurrection. Both of these so far sound great, right? I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I mean, boy, what a lofty thing to even pray. Who would think to pray that? I want to know the power of his resurrection. That sounds like you would hear thunder from heaven saying, just chill out, hotshot. You know, know the power of his resurrection. But Paul prays it. Know the power of his resurrection. That all sounds great. Sounds lofty. Sounds admirable. But he wants to also share in his sufferings. My translation has fellowship of his sufferings. That's what fellowship means. It means sharing. I want to have a fellowship in his sufferings. I want to share in his sufferings. I want some of his sufferings. That's his one thing. And there's one more prong to his one thing. I want to be conformed to his death. I want his death to have conformed me. I want to be shaped by his death. You see how this is more than just forgiveness. This is what we do and pursue when we have forgiveness. We so want the cross that we want it imprinted on our souls, our hearts. Now, we don't really want those last two, do we? It's not part of our one thing. not part of our one cry. But don't you get the feeling that Paul is treating these as a package deal? The answer is yes. You, you should get that feeling. Paul's treating these as a package deal, isn't he? Just say yes. Go ahead. Okay. Now you're in trouble. You said yes. He, he's saying these things go together. And not just the things that are earlier in verse 10. The things that are nice to pray. I want to know them and and I boldly want to have the power of his resurrection working in my life. But he also means the things in verse 9. These are all of the package deal things. In verse 9, it's I want to have a righteousness that isn't my own. I want to have a righteousness that isn't based on my doing. But a righteousness that's based on Christ through faith. His doing alone. I want that. And I want to know him. I want the power of the resurrection. I want sharing in his suffering. And I want to be shaped by the cross. Now this isn't just in a few verses. Uh, We're going to talk about this some more on Sunday. So this is kind of a preview. There will be some repetition. I apologize for that. But I, I think we need to soak in this more than just what one message would allow, and uh, because we have more on a Sunday morning than we do at a Lord's Supper, there'll have to be some overlap to do it. But we'll look at some more verses on Sunday morning. Let me just show you one more passage, First Peter 2. Just listen to it. First Peter 2, where Peter says, You've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. To follow in his footsteps. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin. Not die just to the penalty of sin, but die to the practice of sin. To live in righteousness. 
For by his wounds you were healed. Do you get this? Christianity is a religion of death. It says that the problem is death because of sin. The solution is death, Christ's death upon the cross. And the lifestyle is to be one of death. Christians are to be those who live in the cross, live by the cross, live under the cross. And they glory in it. Paul says in Galatians 6 that this is his one boast. He would boast in nothing else but Christ and him crucified. The cross. Now, boasting means something you trust in, something you proclaim, and something you rejoice in. That's Paul's boast. His one boast, his one joy, is the cross. The cross. That horrible, gory, painful, despised punishment. Execution by the Romans. That's what he boasts in. That's what he loves. That's what he thinks about. That's what he wants to know more. That's what he wants to be shaped by. So it leads us to this question. Do we have a radical or a recreational kind of Christianity? Despite the fact that my job is ministry, I have to say so often, my practice of Christ, my living of Christ sometimes feels much more recreational than it does radical. But if the cross, if the bloody, violent cross is the symbol of what he calls me to, then things should look differently in my life than, than they do. What all this means is that Christ is the goal, not a means to a different goal. Jesus isn't the means to an easy life. Jesus isn't the means to making it or to being safe or, or to having kids who are, you know, smart and safe because they're godly. They, they, they know how to do the right thing and, and it's going to go well for them. It's going to be easy for them. Is Jesus just a means of those kind of, well, 21st century middle class Blessings. He's not the means to anything. He's the end. We want Christ. The cross isn't the means by which we get out of hell. It's the means by which we apprehend him. So we're going to see on Sunday some things from Luke 9 and Luke 14. Let me list them. Some potential rivals that Christians need to keep slaying. Rivals to Christ that Christians need to keep killing. Our reputations, our identity, our independence, our comfort and ease, our homes. We need to put to death our love of homes. That's what it will say in Luke 9 and Luke 14. We need to put to death our love of families. Well, I thought we were supposed to focus on the family. 
of families can be idols, Jesus says. We need to put to death our futures, our plans. We need to put to death our possessions. We need to put to death our very lives. We need to see ourselves on the cross. Now this shouldn't be as shocking to us as it probably is. This shouldn't be shocking to us. Somehow we've gotten hold of the idea that Jesus is this gentle, meek, come alongside you and invite you into a better world kind of a guy. But guess what? He's God. He's the God who of the Old Testament was saying, I'm the Lord and there's none besides me. You are to have no other gods besides me. I'm God. And when he says, you're to have no other God besides me, that there's no other Lord besides me. I've said this before, he's not telling us that he's number one. And then other things can be number two and number three, good things, family and job and church and go down the list. Eventually you get to golf if you want. But what he's saying is he is the Lord and there is nothing that he isn't Lord of. That's the way it should be. He he uses the word besides, not the word beside. So if you were running a race and, and you tied with someone, you would say, he was beside me. He was next to me. But if you ran a race and said there was no one besides me, that's a race you ran by yourself. You see that? I'm the Lord, and in this race, in this thing, in this world, in this life, there is to be nothing else. What do you mean nothing else? What about family? What about these good things? What? Yeah. Uh, Jesus doesn't just go after the big bad stuff. He goes after the stuff that's good, but gets replaced for him sneakily. It's replaced for him. So we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus says things just like God's been saying all along, especially when you get to the New Testament and you find out that he says all authority has been given him in heaven and in earth. Or you get to Colossians and it says he's to have preeminence in all things. Or you get to Philippians 3 and you see that he is subjecting all things unto himself. Or back in Philippians 2, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, everyone will know, and everyone will acknowledge one day that he's the king. Christians are those who acknowledge his kingship now, not just in theory, not just, not just here and there, but in all things. The Lord's Supper reminds us of both of these. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the cross. The Lord's Supper reminds us of what the cross is for us. It is salvation. And it is sanctification. The cross is for us life. Eternal life. And it is the model of our living. It's our hope. And it's to be the tenor of my pursuits. That's what Paul says. It's what he means when he says that I may know him. You want to know him? 
Do you want salvation without him? Do you want a get out of hell card? But if he's there in heaven or not, you could take it or leave it. That's not that important to you. I've asked before, is, is our conception of heaven that its greatest rallying cry will be simply this, heaven, it's better than hell. At least it's better than hell. It's boring as heck, but at least it's not hell. I know what the clouds are for, and that angel sure is chubby, and I hate the sound of harps, but at least it's not fire. Is that what heaven will be, or will heaven be Christ in all his glory? Will he, do we really envision, even though we can't imagine it all yet, do we really envision that his glory will replace the sun? We will spin around him. He will be all we need for light, for heat, for joy, for comfort. The question is, are we now seeing the cross, even now using the Lord's Supper as a means to die to self? The Lord's Supper is our salvation, and yet it's also what he calls his disciples to live in and to keep living in. There's an ongoing thing we'll see in Luke 9 and in Luke 14, an ongoing call to crucify ourselves, to take up our cross. There's an old poem you probably have heard before called Dying to Self. Here's some tests for us. When you're forgotten or neglected or purposely set at naught and you don't sting and hurt with the insults or the oversight, but your heart is happy being counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that is dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed, your advice disregarded, your opinions ridiculed, and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, but you take it in all patiently with loving silence, that's dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, any impunctuality, or any annoyance, when you stand face to face with waste, folly, extravagance, spiritual insensibility, and endure it as Jesus endured, that is dying to self. When you're content with any food, any offering, any climate, any society, any raiment, any interruption by the will of God, that is dying to self. When you never care to refer to yourself in conversation or to record your own good works or to itch after commendations, when you can truly love to be unknown, that is dying to self. When you see your brother prosper and have his needs met and can honestly rejoice with him in spirit and feel no envy, no question of God, while your own needs are far greater and in desperate circumstances... That is dying to self. When you can receive correction and reproof from one of less stature than yourself and can humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, finding no rebellion or resentment rising within your heart, that is dying to self. You say, Ryan, who, who does that? Well, it's proof we're not dead yet, right? He's still doing a work in us. We are to still mortify the deeds of the flesh. 
Romans 8, 13. I, I know I'm not dead yet. But I want Christ. I want to be conformed to his death. And I should have every expectation that that will be painful. So God help us from loving comfort more than consecration. God help us from wanting security more than sanctification. God help us that we love money and retirement funds more than him. God help us when when we love the dearest things in life more than him. I fear I love my wife and kids more than I love God. I pray he would wisely help me to love them as I should, which is more than I actually do. But to love him like I should, which is not nearly like I should, like I do. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper tonight like we always do on these Wednesday nights together. It's a meal, as I said, that tells us both of these things, that Christ died in our place and there's nothing we could do to earn His forgiveness. There's nothing of dying to self or being holy or putting Him in all things as preeminent that would get us to deserve His love. Christ has died in our place. There's forgiveness in Christ and Christ alone. But in that forgiveness, there is now freedom. Freedom from the bondage of all this other stuff. Now he puts us in a path to walk in his ways. The way of the cross. The way which is deadness to the world. Deadness to self. Deadness to idols and alive to God in Christ. So bow with me if you would. Let me encourage you to have a, a, a time of introspection and self-examination like Scripture tells us to. You might be here and you're not a Christian. We're so glad you're here with us. We'd ask tonight that you not partake with us. This is a family meal that represents what we believe we know in our hearts as Christians. It's for those who believe that Christ died in their place and believe their sins are forgiven. They have confidence of that, even if it's a shaky kind of confidence at times. But if you know that you're not a Christian, please just let this pass tonight as others partake and watch and pray and think about this. If you're a Christian, you're also to examine yourself. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 11. And as you examine yourself, I pray, I suspect you'll find yourself wanting. You'll find yourself again needy. You'll be reminded afresh that you need a Savior. Particularly because you're so one-sided about the cross. You view the cross as a get-out-of-hell. And it's not the motivation to walk in His suffering with joy, to endure for His name to be faithful even unto death, to resist sin unto death. You find yourself wanting, where do you go? 
Well, not just in a path of do-betters, more resolve, picking yourself up by your bootstraps. Instead, you return to the cross as not just example, but as your victory, as your substitution. Christ died in your place, and that's the only way you're accepted in God, through Christ. But even pray now. Christian, pray now that as God leads you in partaking this tonight, he would lead you into more energy, more will, more boldness, more confidence to pursue him with reckless abandonment, that your life would represent something of the radical nature of the bloody cross, that you wouldn't despise his rod like you do. Pray now that God would help you to make it your one cry, your one plea like Paul, to say, I want to know him. I want power in my life, but not the power that looks like white suits and looks like the preachers on TV that can throw people around with their waving arms. I want the kind of power that knows his suffering and endures it with strength. Kind of resolve that can say, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. So Lord, we make that our prayer now. We make that our aim. To look at these elements of of body and blood and to see victory for us and to see something of what should be the tenor of our lives. Do what only you can do, Lord. This is simple bread, simple juice, symbols of your body and your blood. And Lord, we need your help that our remembrance would be worshipful and helpful. We need power, resurrection power in our lives that as we partake, it's more than just bread and wine. It's more than just mere thoughts about something that happened in history, but it is, Lord, a meeting of heaven and earth as you touch our hearts and minds and you bring life, you give faith, you produce strength and joy. Restore unto us the joy, the bold, courageous joy of our salvation. Renew a right spirit within us tonight. Do it for your glory and do it because Christ is Lord and Savior. He's King. He's the Lamb and the Lion. We pray in His name tonight with confidence. Amen.